Making predictions, forecasting the future. There's a lot of that that goes on, isn't there? I mean, basically every business does that in their planning cycle, trying to figure out what the next year or three years or five years may look like. The weather forecasters, whether on radio or TV or the app on your phone, they take a shot every day at predicting what the weather is going to be like. And economists, politicians, sportscasters, you name it, they all make predictions. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Well, for our next two Discover the Word podcasts, we're going to explore together some sections of the Bible that have uh, making predictions, uh, forecasting the future dynamic going on. That the scripture might be fulfilled is the study that starts next on Discover the Word. And this is the Discover the Word podcast, this small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And in this episode, you'll be studying with regular group members, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And they have with them at the table, Dr. Max Botner. Now, Max is a New Testament seminary professor that we'll get to know over the next couple podcasts. And one of the first things that comes up is that uh, Max did his PhD studies in Scotland at St. Andrews. And uh, Bill has a question for him about that, that if you know Bill, uh, it won't be a surprise. And then we're going to get into some discussions with him about the number of times when you're reading in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels and specifically in Matthew. And it says that this is happening, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Something was said in the Old Testament that predicted or forecasted what appears in Matthew's Gospel. And Max is going to help us think about how significant that is and what some of the purposes are of that predicting fulfillment aspect of those sections of Scripture. I think it's going to be a fascinating and eye-opening series of conversations that the group has with Dr. Max Bonner. We have the privilege of a guest joining us at the table, Dr. Max Botner who I got the opportunity to meet, and we spent, I think, two hours yeah. <laughs> talking about That's right. uh, the wow. New Testament and uh, specifically how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. Mm. So Bill and Elisa, this is Dr. Botner, or Max, I think, is how he prefers to be. Yes. Ma- Max, please, yes. <laughs> Can we just call you Dr. Max for sure? <laughs> yeah. uh, I have a couple of students that do that, but <laughs> Max is fine. Yeah. So I have a huge and highly theological question. You did your doctorate at St. Andrews, right? I did, yeah. Is that a golf you, course? Well, oh, I was going to ask, did you ever play golf while you were there? That's the question. Yeah, right. Um, I did once. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, I just started trying to take up golf now. So I'm fully embracing Good the dad you. life. You know, get a set of used clubs and start hacking uh-huh. it. And so I'm, I'm sure at some point now I'm going to regret that I didn't golf more when I was uh, in uh, well, And you liked Scotland? Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. And yeah. when the sun shines once a year, it's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, the joke in Scotland is uh, summer was great. This year it was a Tuesday. Oh. <laughs> so <it> was, <laughs> yeah, well, when we moved to Michigan from Southern California, we were told Michigan has two seasons, winter and the 4th of July. So that's, that's <laughs> close. Very similar. Yeah, yeah. very similar. Sounds good. So your expertise, New Testament, and specifically how the Old Testament's used in the New Testament. Yeah. And, um, Which isn't that a fascinating thought? You know, how the Old Testament, I want to slow that down, is yeah. used in the New Testament. Because yeah, we just gloss right over it really those quotes. It really is, yeah. yeah. And I think the best way to think about, or one of the best ways to think about it, not the only way, but a uh, really famous New Testament scholar, Richard Bauckham, if you're familiar with him, he was a St. Andrews guy. But uh, he says something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says that all uh, early Christology, that is belief about Jesus, is exegesis, right? And so what he means by that is the way in which ancient Jews communicate what God is doing in the world and particularly communicate what God is doing through the Messiah is through engagement with the scriptures. So if we want to understand God, want to understand Jesus, we have to understand the Old Testament Mm. is the idea, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll unpack that as we go through. Yeah, absolutely. So where would be a good place to start? Yeah. So I thought we'd actually take a step back for this first one and just think about the term gospel and Mm -hmm. ask the question, so what is a gospel? Mm -hmm. Uh, We have four of them in our New Testament. 
And so we have this thing as Christians where we speak about the gospel, right? We share the gospel, which is the message of salvation. Mm -hmm. But when we open up our canon, we also have four books that are called gospel. Mm -hmm. Gospel according to Matthew, gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John. So how did that come about? What made early Christians even title a book gospel? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to start with the starting point, as far as we know, which is Mark. How uh, come the New Testament doesn't start with Mark then? Yeah. Because that's well, so super confusing. We are going to get to that. Okay. Matthew is uh, the, the big boy that gets really popular early on. I'd always read and understood that the reason Matthew comes first is because the genealogy links it more tightly to the Old Testament. Oh. There are uh, probably a number of canonical connection points, but actually Mark is a great link to the Old Testament as yeah. well, because if you're closing your canon with Malachi, as ours does, mm-hmm. this the message of a new Elijah figure. Well, yeah. Mark opens there. Yep, that's so actually true. Mark's okay. a great connection point as well. So okay. um, yeah, there's probably other reasons as well, but I think Matthew is making that connection link. Thank um, you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Elisa, would you maybe just read for us? I want to look at Mark 1 1, because that's kind of the heading title of the book. And then, if you wouldn't mind, also jumping down to Mark 14 and 15, which are Jesus' first words in the Gospels. Okay. And that's going to be our window into the term gospel. Okay. Okay. So, listening for that. All right. And this is Mark 1 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. Then, in verse 14, after John was put in prison, and this is John the Baptist, uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Excellent. So we have here gospel language, right? So the term here that's translated as good news, euangelion, that's the term gospel. That's what the term means. And notice the progression that we have in Mark's gospel. So the opening is kind of the heading of the book, the gospel. And your translation had about Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an interpretive decision, right? It's about Jesus Christ, but it's also the gospel he brings, right? Because we see in 14 and 15, he's the first preacher of this gospel. Mm -hmm. So I want to note that that kind of dynamic play from an announcement about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, to now presenting Jesus, delivering this Mm -hmm. good news message. The other thing I think that's really important to see the connection here is the tight connection between gospel announcement and kingdom of God language, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So that's been a real... I think struggle sometimes for Christians who have maybe a very narrow idea of gospel as kind of like a, an individualistic message about salvation mm-hmm. and then making sense of how that works with kingdom of God language. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what the gospels are about. The kingdom of God, right? One of the reasons too, if I'm understanding correctly, that those two ideas need to be connected too, is because some of that language was, the gospel writers using language that already existed in the ancient world in Jesus's time. Yes. So let me give you a great example of that. We have this Prini calendar inscription. Okay, wait, what did you say? uh, It's a calendar inscription. Okay. In Prini, Asia Minor. So it dates to, I think it's 9 BC. Mm -hmm. Okay. And on this inscription, two tablets, is the announcement of the gospel, the good news, the same term is used. It's euangelia, the plural, often used, but it's the same term, of the birth of the God of Caesar Augustus. So gospel language within the ancient Mediterranean world is about the good news of a ruler figure, typically. I mean, it can be good news in any kind of way. Good news of a military conquest. Military conquest, but often the ascension of a ruler to the throne, right? Mm. So this has a wider cultural resonance than just, you know, Jewish tradition. Yeah, and you said a Prine? Prine? P-R-I-E-N-E. You can look it up. Uh, Lots of actually great stuff on it online. If you just type that into Google, Mm -hmm. you'll get a ton of really great Mm -hmm. stuff. Okay. The big point is that the word gospel that we typically in America interpret as the news that I'm going to respond to of salvation is really a term that was used in New Testament and Old Testament times too about the ascension of a ruler, good news. And we need to understand that context as we look at that Mm. concept in the New Testament. Yes, exactly. So Jesus's message here, I would, in a nutshell, is in and through my ministry, the God of Israel is becoming Mm. the king of the world, right? Yeah. And the idea of 
Jesus being the son of God also had resonance because Caesar was referred to as a son of God as well. Indeed. Right? Yeah. So I always remind my classes of this. I ask who was the most famous son of God in the first century? Huh. And they all say Jesus. And I say that's incorrect. Uh, Caesar. And was it more than Caesar? I just thought it, are most kings considered the son of God or yeah. was Caesar kind of, you know, that's a great point. Narcissistic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. Um, no, you're right. Many kings were considered divine okay. or yeah. semi-divine okay. figures and that language is, is more broad but it becomes famous in Rome because what happens is Augustus deifies Julius Caesar and he becomes the first son of God and so really there are only two sons of God who are not tied to a local cult in the ancient world but are kind of ubiquitous Caesar and Jesus yeah. so yeah. yeah yeah now a second ago you said that that was rooted in the Old Testament yeah so I'll give you a couple of examples okay. here actually Bill this might be worth reading if we have just a moment here would you turn to Isaiah 40 for us and the reason I want us to read this passage is because this is the passage that Mark actually quotes from mm-hmm. uh, that I just read the beginning of. Yeah. yeah so you read the, okay. the first part which is yeah. actually Malachi and Exodus but then in verse 3 it turns to Isaiah so Isaiah 40 okay I think it's uh either verse 10 or 11. I'll tell you to stop. (laughs) Okay. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now we get some Handel's Messiah. Mm -hmm. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, The Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Perfect. So lots going on there. But this is the passage that Mark quotes from at the beginning. We're talking gospel. And you could hear twice there the term of announcing the good news. So that's the verbal form of our noun gospel, right? And to it, announce. You, to announce okay. the good news. Mm-hmm. And you can hear what is the announcement there? Your mm-hmm. God reigns, Yeah. right? So you see the announcement of the good news is that God, the Lord is king. The context of this passage is of return of exile. So you could see the beginning of that mm-hmm. text. Your sins are forgiven. You've paid double for them. And so this is the movement of return of exile. And I just want to kind of put that out there for now because that's going to become a major theme when we get into Matthew, that okay. Jesus marks the end of Israel's yeah. exile. Okay. So this is a good news announcement of God becoming king, uh, end of exile. And then the third key text is Isaiah 61, where you have an anointed figure who's anointed to gospel, to preach good news to the poor. So Isaiah is the gospel that the early church was reading while they were writing the gospels, right? And this is what really informs our understanding of the good news. When we think about the relationship between the gospels, or maybe better, when you think about our understanding of authorship and copyright and how Mm -hmm. things work out. (laughs) How does that inform what you see going on in the Gospels? And here I'm presupposing that you've probably read Matthew, Mark, and Luke (laughs) and recognize that there are some similarities there and maybe some relationships going on. So, Well, yeah, there's some similarities there. And I think somebody might say there's some plagiarism there. Um, (laughs) Yeah. They didn't have the advantage of the turn it in system, right? Which I have today. It shows me 
all the places where there's matches, there'd be big hits on the Turnitin <laughs> system. The other thing is that we're used to seeing a book with a specific author, you know, Matthew by Matthew. <laughs> the Gospel right. According to Matthew by Matthew. The Gospel According to Luke by Luke. Exactly. Right. <laughs> That's right. We have four Gospels that are anonymously written in the sense that the, mm-hmm. the evangelists never identify themselves explicitly, yeah. right? The closest you get in John's gospel is the beloved disciple, yeah. mm-hmm. right, which is a code name. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll talk about how the names get a- yeah. attached to the gospels, but our titles, gospel according to, are in, in fact secondary. to. Yeah, the... so it's not like where Paul says, hey, I'm the one writing this letter, which I know letter writing also has a very complicated story right. in the New Testament, but where we have like, okay, Paul was at least involved in yes. writing. We don't know that for sure with the Gospels mm. because of the way it's worded. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So I thought to get a little bit of a sense, a, a window into Gospel writing production, we would go to Luke 1, 1 through 4. So, Elisa, would you maybe be willing to read? This is Luke, the historian's prologue. It's a pretty short prologue compared to other historians we have, but it, I mean, it, it has similar features. And it's the only one where the evangelist is kind of laying out a formal historian's prologue. So, it gives us some insight into, I think, gospel writing in the first century. Okay. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the very first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Excellent. So what do we make of this text? What is Luke here revealing to us? Well, first of all, he's revealing his target audience. Okay, uh, very good. Yeah, <laughs> Theophilus. Publishing world, that matters. That's yeah. Theophilus. And do we know if that's his actual name? I know it means lover of God. Sure. So is it his actual name or is it just kind of a, more of a general thing for, for anyone who loves God? Yeah, I, don't know. I think he's addressing his patron, right? Yeah. The person that made it possible for him to do yeah. the kind of rigorous investigation and writing that yeah. he's undertaking in Luke Acts. Um, but the name Theophilus could be someone's name or maybe a nickname kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you say patron, that would be the person paying for the project. Funding basically. the project. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing I notice is orderly mm-hmm. is repeated a couple of times. So an orderly account, an orderly account. Yeah, so there's detailed. some structure here. Yeah, that yeah. seems, and that also may imply maybe that there were some accounts going around that weren't so orderly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he's trying to correct a problem here. <laughs> precisely. Yes, I'm hearing precisely. Enneagram types. Yes. I'm hearing people who have different personalities. Yeah. Yes. He yes. wants to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and there is a little bit to the. I don't want to overstate this, but there is a little bit to, as a historian, you need to justify why you're writing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if there are other accounts prior, let's say Mark and maybe Matthew, you need to make a case for why you we also- need another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why do we need another one? <laughs> the language of this orderly account also is interesting. The Greek term diagesis is um, a term for an ordered narrative account. So it gives us a little bit of Luke's perception of some of the other texts that came before him. It is worth noting, most scholars see the Gospels as being along the lines of Greco-Roman biography. Now, see, I heard it said one time, Max, and you can feel free to disagree because this feels harsh, but I heard it said one time that if these are biographies, they're the worst biographies ever written. Yeah. Because there are huge chunks of Jesus's life that are omitted. Yeah. That they aren't really so much biographies as they are witnesses. I think we have different expectations of what a biography should look like. What we have now going on is there's a lot of scholars that are saying because they're Greco-Roman biography, therefore. And I think that's the leap that I'm a little bit more cautious about because Mm -hmm. ancient biography, Greco-Roman biography is very broad category. And the Gospels fit into that, broadly speaking, but they're doing different things. So great example, just kind of cultural touch point. Plutarch, at the opening of his book, where he's writing biographies on different famous figures, when he's writing the opening of his book on Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, he says, uh, the reader must forgive me for I'm going to skirt by a lot of detail here that other people know about. After all, I'm not writing history, but biography. So it's the same term there. Um, So biographies are selective. They're focused on 
certain teachings and deeds of the person. So the importance of Greco-Roman biography versus maybe what we might think of as biography today is, first of all, even just that term Greek-Roman. So this is a different type of yeah, biography yeah. from a different time. Yeah. Was there a Hebrew type of biography to build off of that Yeah, idea? so the Gospels are informed by what I would call like Hebrew prose narrative, right? Okay. So they're definitely informed by ways of narrating stories that are ingrained in the Jewish scriptures. So yeah. like Elijah, Elisha types, stories of David, these kind of like episodic things, those also inform. Okay. And that makes sense because even modern biographies, like even Metaxas and Bonhoeffer had to leave out details of Bonhoeffer's life, right? right? He had to be That's selected. Right. And it was and like 5,000 And that was so many words. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. So we looked at Mark in the first program. So now we're just thinking about Matthew as a development from Mark. And I want to make a case for that and then lay out why that might be helpful mm -hmm. for us to think in those terms. Mm -hmm. So one thing is that the relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think it's really important for Christians to recognize, is not something that you know, modern critical scholars somehow realized in an 18th century lab in Europe. Mm. The church was talking about these relationships well into antiquity. The premier example of a scholar who's tried to work this out was St. Augustine. So he wrote a massive work called On the Harmony of the Gospels, where mm -hmm. he actually tried to work out the relationship. Between of, the three. Between mm -hmm. the three. Mm -hmm. And Augustine came at a point in the tradition where everybody kind of assumed that Matthew was written first. Well, it comes first. It comes first in the <laughs> list. Yeah. And you have this really obscure, weird tradition that no one knows for sure what it is about a Hebrew Matthew floating out yeah. there as being at the head of the tradition. Yeah. So Augustine assumes Matthew's written first. It, it belongs there. It's first. And the way he tries to describe it is, okay, you have Matthew first, which we'll call Matthean priority. Matthew's like a king, Augustine says, and every good king needs a servant to carry its robe, you know? And uh, so Mark's like the servant coming behind Matthew. Mark's like the cliff note version, if you're, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so he comes after Matthew and then you have, you have Luke. And interestingly, in book four, Augustine anticipates where some modern scholars will go, where he says, what if Mark also had access to Luke? So you get this kind of triangulation mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. Well, fast forward into modern scholarship. The assumption throughout church history was that Matthew had been written first, even into the modern period. But eventually enough probing happens where scholars recognize, eh, it seems more likely that Mark was written first. And part of that is because it seems like the others build on Mark, that Mark's kind of the base outline that they use and they, mm. they construct around it. Is that indeed, it? Indeed, indeed, right? And so we don't know this for sure, but if you compare just Mark and Matthew, there are numerous places where Matthew adds detail to what Mark already has. Right. Mm -hmm. Mark might have an allusion to an Old mm -hmm. Testament text. Matthew cites that Old Testament yeah. text. Yeah. Yeah. It's also very hard, I think, to consider that if Mark comes after Matthew, Mark, for some inexplicable reason, cut out the entire birth narrative, yeah. all of that, mm -hmm. and the resurrection, you know, appearances yeah. and everything. Details. A lot of stuff Mark mm -hmm. would have had to cut. So when you try to figure out which is more plausible, it seems much more plausible that Mark comes first. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that really helps us see then what Matthew thinks he's doing in a way as taking up the tradition, the story, basically the framework of Mark, mm -hmm. but adding to that with other um, authoritative traditions and details. Hmm. I hear you. And I'm really enjoying this conversation because I kind of geek out over these things too. <laughs> but the Lord had me marry someone who is very much more practical and to the point. Yeah. And I can hear her voice in my head going, so what? Yeah. Why, Why is this helpful to mm -hmm. us? Why should yeah, we care? Totally, totally. I think it's helpful for us only because sometimes it uh, troubles Christians mm -hmm. to learn about literary mm -hmm. relationships between That's true. texts. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm always mm -hmm. open to that conversation to think about how the Holy Spirit works, how sometimes we might be imposing our ideas of how the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit has to work onto how things actually happen. But I think beyond that, if we're going to have an appreciation for the elegance and the structure of Matthew's narrative, it's helpful to see what Matthew does with Mark yeah. as a mm. source. Well, and I was wondering about that too, Max, because there's also, again, to go back to Theophilus, mm -hmm. uh, where we started in Luke, isn't there also a target audience component that maybe mm -hmm. Mark was writing for a particular audience, yeah. but you could see Matthew saying, yeah, but I want this to work better for Jewish hearers. Right. And Luke, maybe well, I want it for maybe a different group. And so maybe some stylizing it to directly impact the people they're trying to reach. Does that make any sense? It, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is we don't know for sure who the audiences of any of the Gospels were, like specifically, right? And scholars have kind of ebbed and flowed in terms of thinking of kind of tight-knit 
gospel communities, which I don't mm. think is correct. I think these gospels are written to be broadly published as Bauckham argues in Gospel of All Christians. But I do think there are distinctive groups within that, right? Yeah. And I think the majority view, which I think is correct, is that Matthew is engaged with a Jewish Christian movement that's also taking on an influx of Gentile Christians, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe in a place like Syrian mm-hmm. Antioch, mm-hmm. and that this is actually a, a major moment of identity formation for mm-hmm. these Christians who are trying to navigate their identity with other Jews who don't see Jesus as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so I think we do see some of that going on in Matthew. So it's not just how the Holy Spirit has worked through these different, like, putting these pieces together in the different stories, but also how the Holy Spirit is working in these communities and how each of these authors is helping to tell the story in a contextual way, in a way that would be relevant to those communities and how the Holy Spirit's working there. Yeah, I think that's right. Another really helpful part of the conversation, building the foundation for where this series is going. We're going to get to some of the Old Testament quotes or citations that Matthew uses in telling the story of Jesus, but understanding the how and the why before we do that is extremely important. So thanks, Max, for your patience in taking us that way. Another important building block in this is uh, the genealogy that leads off Matthew, and that's what Max wants us to take note of when this study continues after this quick break. I just want to take a few moments to tell you about a resource that I think makes a perfect supplement to our current podcast. It's a free online course from Our Daily Bread University titled New Testament Basics. Now, Our Daily Bread University is an aspect of our ministry that gives learners at all levels the chance to take easily accessible, affordable, Bible-focused courses in many different subject areas. ODBU contracts with the most gifted teachers and professors and authors and scholars in a variety of disciplines to capture their lectures and then provide a large library of supplemental resources to enhance your learning experience. The professor for the course that we'd like you to try is Dr. Sid Buzzle. He has over 40 years of combined experience in college and seminary education. He's taught at Dallas Theological Seminary and Denver Seminary. Colorado Christian University, uh, he knows how to help us learn. And he's an amazing friend of this show. He's the one that told us one time that truth discovered is even more powerful than truth that is simply told. And that has shaped us, and it's shaped how he put this course on the New Testament together. Because as you learn, you'll discover things about the New Testament that you never knew. Uh, Sid was a good friend of Haddon Robinson's. Elisa and her husband, Evan, know him well. And he's been a good friend of Discover the Word, joining us as a guest a number of times. And I just think this is a great course for Discover the Word group members. You can access this free ODBU course, New Testament Basics, when you visit discovertheword.org. And now let's get back to our study with Dr. Max Botner that scripture might be fulfilled. We're going to have a conversation about the opening of Matthew's gospel, which opens with a a genealogy. And if you're anything like me, you skipped over the genealogies typically when you're reading the Bible, right? And they were kind of a (laughs) bunch of hard to pronounce names, hard to pronounce names, Uh kind of a snooze fest, right? (laughs) But I'm going to try to make the case for us here that uh, Matthew's genealogy is actually telling a really important story. But I wanted to just kind of pose a question to you all to start, like, why do we have genealogies? What's the purpose of telling these family stories Mm. in the first place? Mm. I feel like in some ways we understand it maybe better than I did growing up because Mm. of things like the different ways you can track family trees now online. Yeah, and so like that's, Ancestry.com. Yeah, we're more connected now yeah. to, I that's think, our family point. stories yeah. than yeah, we used to Yeah, that's a be. really good point. But growing up, like, I barely knew my immediate family. Yeah. So big family story didn't yeah. mean much to me, but it means more now. Yeah, and within Israel, it was a big deal because bloodlines were important. Family lines were important. If you were of the tribe of Levi, you were the priestly tribe, so that mattered. If you were of the tribe of Judah, you were the kingly tribe, right. so that mattered. So being able to track your heritage back 
may have something to say in what your life was going to look like. So it became mm-hmm. important for that reason. Right. Well, and there's a prophetic element here in terms of, you know, in the Old Testament, there are prophecies about who the Messiah will be, where you will come from. Right. And so when you look at the genealogy, you can kind of thread this like a mystery. You right. know, here's a clue, here's a clue, here's a clue. Whereas in our world, we're said that past the third generation, no one will remember you, you know, right. so your grandchildren mm-hmm. are about it. And yeah. this is very different. Yes, Indeed. When we're thinking about family stories, too, anytime we tell a family story, it's being shaped in a particular way, right? To communicate something to us about our identity. And most family stories are filled with both sources of pride and also sources of shame sometimes, Mm. you know? And when we think Mm -hmm. about the story that Matthew is telling here, it is one of God's blessing, but it's also one that's centered around exile, which means Mm -hmm. disobedience to the commands of God. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. it's narrating that story as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. A couple points just to kind of get us thinking here. So the opening here is really interesting. Matthew opens, this is like the heading of Matthew's book. We looked at Mark's. The book of the genealogy, or you could translate it Genesis. This is the Greek word Hmm. Genesis Mm -hmm. of uh, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Okay, it's very different from Mark, which starts off Jesus, son of God. Indeed, (laughs) indeed. And it's not called the gospel either in the way he starts it off. So it's kind of another nod back to the very opening of our canon, Genesis. Mm. It's Mm. the same word used Mm -hmm. there. So the new Genesis starting in Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's neat. Yeah, and in a different way, John does a similar thing, only he does it with the exact wording in the beginning. Correct, Mm. right? Correct, in the beginning was the word. True, good insight. So we have these connections, these hinges back to it. But we also have the mention here of David and Abraham, right? Mm -hmm. And if you pay attention to the genealogy, you'll notice a couple things. One is there's three sets of 14 names, and two, at the end, when he summarizes the movement, it is 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, mm-hmm. and 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. So it's a very distinct representation mm-hmm. of Israel's history. Mm-hmm. And the 14 actually match, but in reverse order, the opening here. Jesus, Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Whoa, baby. So these two figures are really- We need a whiteboard. Are linked together, <laughs> yeah. right? I was thinking the same thing, mm-hmm. but I also was thinking like, wow, it was nice of him to count all this for us ahead of time. <laughs> but it actually is Matthew one seventeen. All the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Yeah. And from oh, David good. to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Yeah. So, yeah. so Matthew counts it for us. And that, <laughs> that is a key statement to understanding yeah. what he's doing in the genealogy. If you're visual and you allow yourself this privilege, you might actually grab a pen yeah. and circle up Matthew 1, 17, and then go back mm-hmm. and circle up Matthew one, two, mm-hmm. and then one, twelve, yeah. you know, and just to kind of mm-hmm. orient, because mm-hmm. this is yes. important and yes, it's hard it to understand when we're yeah. just talking it audibly is. here. And there's also, uh, it seems to me at least, uh, a little bit of a hint of the story Matthew tends to tell, yes. because he says 14 from the deportation from Babylon to the time of Christ, exactly. Messiah, Messiah, not Jesus. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you this story Making about the, the Messiah coming. Yes. Yeah. And then he goes on from there. So yes. there's a lot kind of yes. jammed in yes. there. So this is a thread we're going to trace throughout the rest of our conversations. I tried to foreground it with the Mark discussion as well, that both Matthew and Mark are narrating Jesus into Israel's story as the end of exile. Mm-hmm. So it's a particular way of mm. telling the story of Israel, which is not unique to the New Testament. Some other Jews of the period were telling it that way as well. Mm. But that's clearly what Matthew is wanting to mm. say here. Mm. That's mm. Israel's history. And Jesus marks the end of exile mm-hmm. and the beginning of restoration. Mm-hmm. So now let's dive in a little bit more. The number 14 here. Mm-hmm. Any idea why Matthew chooses the number 14? No, honestly. Crickets. Yeah. All right. All right. So this is an example of Hebrew gematria, which is numerology. Okay. Uh, where you're using the number value. Every Hebrew character has a numeric value as well. Every letter in the alphabet? Every letter. Okay. So the, the uh, most famous example of this is, of course, the beast in Revelation. Oh. is a number of a person, 666, mm-hmm. right? Wouldn't you know it, the name David, right, is Dalit, Vav, Dalit, and it adds up to 14. So it's a kind of way of showing, even with the structure of the 14, mm-hmm. this is the son of uh, Okay, does son God really do this stuff? Does he really care? I mean, th- th- sometimes I just go, it reminds me of those sayings about 
the um, what do you call the rabbis counting the number of angels on the head of a pen. Yeah, you know, and I and yeah. like, really, yeah, you know what the Matthew uh, cares. Matthew cares. A number of ancient Jews were re- very interested to show the symmetry of the order of things, and so mm. gematria plays into that typically, and that how God's order and structure in creation is played out in numbers. So that's one really key point uh, here. The other one is uh, we have the mention of four women yeah. in the genealogy. So we have the mention of Tamar, mm-hmm. Rahab, mm-hmm. Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Yeah, not Bathsheba, right. the wife of and Uriah. And we'll talk about why that probably yeah. is in a second. So the reasoning for this is something people have pondered over. And one of the common yeah. explanations you get is, well, isn't that great? Uh, God includes these sort of sexually promiscuous women into the genealogy, and therefore we have sinners in Jesus's genealogy. And I think that actually probably reflects something about our way of thinking yeah. about women yeah. can only be there if there's something yeah, wrong with them. Because all these men were just completely righteous. Yeah. Well, that was my assumption. <laughs> That's sarcasm. I mean, oh, was it? <laughs> and in fact, if you go and, and look at these stories, it doesn't work. Yeah. In the Judah story, right? Perez, Tamar's a victim. Yeah. And what does Judah say to Tamar at the end of the story? Mm. You are more righteous than mm. I am. That's right. So it doesn't work that way. That weird story in Genesis 39 is like the problem that yeah. Genesis has to, one of the problems that Genesis has to resolve through the Joseph narrative is the yeah. restoration of Judah mm. because it's through Judah that the king will come. And I think it's only in yeah. some very extreme interpretations that anybody would consider Ruth promiscuous. I mean, she seems to be a highly virtuous woman. Yeah. And the power dynamic with Bathsheba and David. Right? You have the yes. king saying this is what's going to happen. Indeed. Talk about abuse. In our yeah. culture, yeah. we would probably describe that as a form of rape. Yeah. Yes, honestly. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And this idea that she was flaunting herself on the rooftop, if you know anything about the topography of the city, David's at the top of the city looking down. Mm-hmm. She's not doing anything wrong. So why are these four women here? The best answer is that they're all Gentile women. Yeah. Gentile women who've been mm. included into the people of God. Mm. Um, so Rahab, obviously, she is the one that welcomes the spies in. Lots mm-hmm. made of Rahab in early exemplar lists. You can look at Hebrews. She's kind of like one of the last ones that Hebrews mentions. First Clement, it's a late first century Christian letter, praises Rahab for her faith and hospitality. So she's a kind wow. of heroine figure. Ruth, obviously, we've got a whole book on Ruth. Yeah. Ruth the Moabite, right? Yeah, right. So right. she's an example of your God will be my God. Mm-hmm. The wife of Uriah, well, why would Bathsheba be designated as the wife of Uriah? If you know anything about the Second Samuel text, how is Uriah always described? Mm. The Hittite. The Hittite. Oh, yeah. good job. So that yeah. tells you, that communicates mm-hmm. to you yeah. mm-hmm. that Bathsheba is not an Israelite. Okay. She's yeah. a Hittite. Tamar is the trickiest one. There's a little bit of mixed in the tradition, but a number of Jewish interpreters, and I think this is what Matthew assumes, is that mm-hmm. she's a Canaanite. Yeah. And that's, a, I think, a very plausible inference from yeah. the Genesis 39 text. And if you're right, and I've always heard Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience, but you said it's to an audience of Jewish with an influx of people who are coming to faith in Christ from the Gentile world. So having Gentiles included in the genealogy mm-hmm. makes mm-hmm. this very important for his audience. Very very important. But does it diminish it that they are women in a culture that was so patriarchal? Yeah, no, I, I don't think so, okay. actually. And this actually anticipates the story of Mark calls her the Syrophoenician woman, but Matthew actually labels her the Canaanite yeah, woman to kind of play up right. this tension. And so she kind of enacts in this story coming to Jesus what's already sort of laid out that. Israel's story, rightly understood, is a story for all the nations to be included in. And the gospel that begins with Gentiles in the genealogy ends Mm. with go to all the world. Precisely. Go Ah. to all the nations. We'll get to that. But yes, go to all the nations. That's precisely right. Wow, in about 10 minutes there, we went from the genealogical records to go into all the nations. That key theme in Matthew is an important assumption to have in mind as we move forward looking at Matthew's references to the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills what was written there. Well, it's great to have you here at the table for Discover the Word and uh, the series called That Scripture Might Be Fulfilled. And with that foundation now built, uh, let's get into some specific quotations or citations as Max calls them. And let's begin with one about the virgin birth of Jesus. 
so we are now getting into Matthew's fulfillment citations, which is Oof, uh, some big words already. S- some big <laughs> word stuff. So Matthew, fasten your seatbelt. Uh, yeah, this is where we're going to be now for these next conversations. So Matthew is locating certain events in Jesus's life and saying that these things happen in order that what the Lord spoke through the prophet might be fulfilled. And so we're kind of tracing a thread through this. Many people have noticed that Matthew front loads these fulfillment Mm -hmm. citations in his gospel. So he seems Mm -hmm. to be up to something here. He's trying to tell Mm -hmm. a particular story. It's the story that he already was telling in the genealogy about the son of David coming to liberate Israel from exile. Now, you just said a, an interesting word, citations. So these are things that come from somewhere else that he is quoting from yeah. or yes. retelling in his own yeah. words yes. or something. Old Testament text. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you also said in one of the earlier conversations that Mark alludes to these things, but Matthew fleshes them out and actually quotes them. That's right. This portion of Matthew is not in Mark, so we don't have that kind of comparison, but it's true. So just as one example, Mark presents Jesus coming in on the colt, right? When he, yeah. he comes in, which is a pretty clear allusion to Zechariah 9.9. Yeah. Mark expects his audience to make that connection. Yeah. Here's the Messiah coming in as described in Zechariah. Well, Matthew goes ahead and says, I'll cite Zechariah, right? <laughs> oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So that's an example mm-hmm. of what, what, what Bill's talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Yeah. So what I want us to consider here is this key text, right? Which we're very familiar with from the Christmas story. Look or behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Yeah. And where is that? Uh, that is Matthew one twenty three. Thank you. This is Matthew saying that what has happened, Mary is bearing a son, uh, and he will save his people from their sins. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is happening yeah. to fulfill that. And to your point that you mentioned last time about Matthew inviting Gentiles into the story, he defines Emmanuel as well, in case they wouldn't have made that connection, which means God with us. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And a very important connection here to just kind of dangle out in front of us that we're going to come back to. This is the final thing that Jesus says to them. I will be with you always mm-hmm. unto the end of the age. Mm-hmm. So the Emmanuel remains Emmanuel with yeah. us. And that's our only hope as Christians right, because right, he's Emmanuel right. with us. So one of the things I wanted to do here is just spend a few moments thinking about the context, right? So this is a citation from Isaiah seven fourteen, Which means a quote. A quote, yeah. <laughs> a quote from Isaiah seven fourteen. The context is one of political uncertainty, oppression, and a concern for, and Isaiah makes this point multiple times, the house of David. Mm-hmm. In fact, even when he addresses King Ahaz in the verse right before Isaiah 14, he addresses him as house of David. It's very critical to note that what's at issue here, what's at stake is the house of David. Mm. Mm. So that ties back to the genealogy. It ties back into this whole theme, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, where it gets a little bit tricky from our perspective, because I think sometimes naturally we come to Matthew and we say, okay, Isaiah was predicting hundreds of years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus would be born a virgin. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that's correct, but we have to nuance that a little bit. So um, in the original Isaiah context here in in, in seven and eight, it's quite clear that this child is born in Ahaz's lifetime. Otherwise the sign Mm -hmm. has no purpose uh, to it. Now there's some debate about who this child is. Based on 8.3, many will say uh, it's the child of the prophet himself as the sign to the king. But if you trace the trajectory on a little bit further in Isaiah, it's actually carried out to a new promise in 9 for a son of David. So even within Isaiah, this promise of a child in a short two-chapter segment is expanded and extended into the future. And so that's one way to see how a careful reader of Isaiah could see how this text has a forward trajectory, even though its immediate fulfillment happens in the life of the king. Yeah. Now, let me ask a question on that, because growing up, the true facts, and I say that in air quotes about what the story of Jesus is, yeah. is there's only been one person ever born of a virgin, and that's Jesus. Yes. So are we saying that at some point in the past that there was another child born of a virgin? Good, good question. Okay. Yeah, great question. The answer to that is no. So if you look at the Hebrew word there for this translated virgin in Greek, it's Alma, which means young woman. A young woman could be a virgin, mm-hmm. but in this context, I think it's quite clear she's not. So in the original Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen, yeah, it's translated in my scripture as the virgin, but it really means a young woman. Young woman. So what happens is, is the Greek translator of Isaiah translates mm-hmm. Alma as Parthenos which more particularly means virgin, although it can also mean young woman. Mm -hmm. So the the Greek translator of Isaiah 
thought Parthenos was a perfectly good translation for Alma, mm -hmm. but it has more of a potential, particular potential to mean virgin specifically. Mm -hmm. And so Matthew says, ah, this has really happened. It's kind of been filled up. The full yeah. meaning of this text okay. has been filled up in Jesus. Okay, so my question is, in our English translations of the Bible, yeah. from a Christian perspective, do they translate Isaiah seven fourteen virgin, to line it up with Matthew 1 yeah. so that there's an echo yeah. there. Yeah. Because if you open up Isaiah 7, 14 yeah. and it said a young girl, and then you read, yeah, he said a virgin, and you say, wait a minute, that's not what he said. So there is space yeah. for both meanings, yep. but we tend to translate that way just for our own consistency of thought. Is yeah. that right? That's a very perceptive question, Bill. Um, and it actually comes down to the philosophy of the translation committee. So NIV does that kind of thing where it lines it up. NRSV, which I happen to have here with me, does not. So mm -hmm. if I flip to Isaiah, it'll say the young woman yeah, that's what uh, I have is pregnant that's what I with a child. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, a real interesting question of translation philosophy. How much should text in the New Testament be lined up precisely with the text in the Old mm -hmm. Testament? And what I think you're you're pointing us to, which is really helpful, because I think one of the things that I've been very curious in in my Christian walk is like, how does the Old Testament and New Testament, how do we read them? Mm -hmm. And what I think you're helping us see is Matthew's helping us like, go back and read the Old Testament, mm -hmm. but we can't lose sight of the fact that the Old Testament has its own cultural context, its own message. So Isaiah mm -hmm. is talking about events happening in his lifetime. Right. And sometimes we forget, I think, that yeah. Isaiah is talking about stuff that that is also happening in his lifetime, even if, like you said, the fuller fulfillment happens yeah. later with Jesus. And at a foundational level, I mean, we talk here at this table a lot, Max, about a particular guest we had, Sally Lloyd-Jones, mm -hmm. who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, which yeah. is my, kind of the intellectual counterpoint to my what you're doing that. with us. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. But, but her subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. Yeah. And so... When we look at the Old Testament stories, like Daniel says, yes, they have their own context. Yes, they have their own understanding that the first hearers would have had. Mm -hmm. But there's also this whispering yes. of looking forward to the, the true fulfillment yes. who would come in the person of Jesus later on. Yeah. And, and so the original context plus the ultimate realization yeah. are both really important, right? I completely agree, yeah. And I, I would say that for the early readers, early Christians like Matthew, you know, Jesus is the key to everything that yeah. makes sense of everything. And so uh, he is the hinge of our canon, right? The mm -hmm. Old Testament story makes sense in light of Jesus. And we understand Jesus through the Old Testament and we understand the Old Testament through Jesus. So yeah. that's absolutely the case. And um, I don't think in any way recognizing that Isaiah had an earlier a context undermines the message of Matthew Correct. because it's the Holy Spirit ultimately that is inspiring uh, these yeah. words. And what Matthew is saying, inspired by the same spirit that inspired Isaiah, is that this text is having a f its full meaning mm -hmm. in Jesus. But what's really neat about paying attention to the Isaiah context here is that we see that the virgin birth, it's not about less, but it's about more than just a miraculous birth. Because the story here in Isaiah 7 and 8 of Emmanuel is God liberating his people through uh, the, the birth of this child. Mm -hmm. So it fits in really well with the story Matthew's trying to tell about liberation from exile, from tyranny. Which was a key to the genealogy we saw right. in the last conversation. Exactly. And I really like um, where you've anchored us for our conversation right now in Matthew 1, 22. All this took place to fulfill, talking about the bigger yeah. meaning here, the prophet. And then that's the mm -hmm. context Matthew uses yep. as he quotes Isaiah. Yep. You know, and it pushes us forward into, yeah. I mean, all of us, even around this conversation yep. at this table. Yep. into Emmanuel, God with us. That's right. That's right. To recognize. So, and, and even in that case, the title of God with us has a fuller sense for Matthew, right? Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. just that, hey, this is a, a king, therefore God is with us. It's in Jesus, God is with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to ask, because this would have been unexpected. They expected a Messiah. They didn't expect him to be God in human form. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now with that, though, we've mentioned exile a few times if we're thinking about Babylonian exile, mm -hmm. they're already out of exile. Mm -hmm. And so you've mentioned a couple of times that Jesus enters and this is like indicating the end of exile. Mm -hmm. But for someone who's coming from that perspective of we're already out of Babylon, yeah. 
are we thinking of exile in two different ways? Like the exile of Babylon has ended, but this is a different kind Figurative, of exile. Almost. Yeah, it's a it's a sort of way of theologizing your history and saying where you are mm-hmm. at, at the moment in God's mm-hmm. salvation history. You see this already beginning in Daniel, where Daniel reinterprets Jeremiah's prophecy of seventy years and says seventy times seven, so four hundred and ninety mm-hmm. years. It's not ubiquitous throughout, you know, Second Temple yeah. Judaism, but you do find some Jewish groups telling the Jewish story in a particular way to say we are kind of at the precipice of end of exile restoration. Mm. There's also a sense in which with the Babylonian exile, when they came back to the land, they returned, but there wasn't really that spiritual restoration. I mean, that wouldn't really be realized until Jesus, right? Or even the kingly, yeah. right? Like they never exactly. had a kingship or autonomy over themselves. Right. The Davidic throne certainly is never restored, and that's brought up you know, by other Jewish authors, and I think Matthew also playing that up. But yeah, I think it's really helpful to see that um, Matthew is a very careful reader of the Old Testament. He sees these deep resonances between the text that he's citing and the story being told there and the story of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of coalescence together that we see here with the Isaiah citation. And we'll see it in every, basically every citation that we look at. Isn't amazing how All the pieces come together like a puzzle almost. The bigger story of Jesus is being told throughout the entire Bible. Every story really does whisper Jesus' name. Now, before we move on to the next Old Testament citation that Matthew says happened, that Scripture might be fulfilled, we ask Max to take just a second and give us another takeaway from our discussion about the virgin birth. And uh, so, Max, if you would, please. So when we're thinking about kind of the takeaway from the virgin birth story and Mm -hmm. what it could mean to allow Isaiah's larger context to fill that out for us. Yeah. Fill it up, as Matthew says. Mm -hmm. I think we could say is that the virgin birth is absolutely an essential component, obviously, right, of our Christian creeds and confessions. It speaks to the miraculous power of the one true God, of the Father who sends the Son by the Spirit. But what I've been trying to suggest is that Matthew might be doing more than making metaphysical claims, as astonishing as those claims might be, right? (laughs) I think he also wants to show us that this child who's born of a virgin is the ideal Davidic king come to liberate God's people from imperial threat. Mm, Uh, And so the people in Isaiah's day, uh, and you see this in the wider context of Isaiah, many of them did reject God's act of liberation, uh, just as many in Jesus's day rejected his act, which is the fullest sign of God's presence with his people, Emmanuel. So for us as Christ followers today, how do we receive Emmanuel? And this is something we'll talk about more certainly in the conversations to come. But I want to suggest that it would do little good for God's people to confess the virgin birth if at the same time we perpetuate the ways of of empire, the things that Jesus came to liberate people from, sin, Hmm. death, uh, and empire. So when the church behaves more like Ahaz, that was the king who received Mm -hmm. the original sign, or Herod, the king we'll talk Mm -hmm. about more in future conversations, than Mary and Joseph, when God's people pursue power, prestige, rather than humility and lowliness, uh, we confuse our agenda for God's rather than allow the spirit to reform our ways. And in that sense, we are saying no to this son born of a virgin. Hmm. His grace continues to beckon us to new ways of being. That is to say no to empire and yes to God who has the power to raise the dead. So how shall we receive Emmanuel? Matthew tells us only in dying to ourselves that we might truly live in him, only in trusting that his way, the way of the cross is the way to liberation. Hmm. So in a sense, we're asked to say no to empire, but yes to a different kind of kingdom. A different kind of kingdom. The kingdom of God is an empire. The gospels occur about that, but it's a different kind of empire than anything we've seen. All right. That's helpful as we process the significance of why Matthew mentioned this, the virgin birth, that this happened, that scripture might be fulfilled. And now let's explore another of these citations together and how Micah chapter 5 and other Old Testament statements are connected to Jesus' birth and to the visit of the wise men. So we are now looking at the story of the wise men from the east or the magi. This is Matthew 2, uh, 1 through 11. 
And so a uh, question I'd like to pose to the three of you is what do you think of these wise men, right? So we see them in <laughs> our nativity scenes. You yep. might have even yep. played one or know someone who played one in a church play <laughs> at one point. And yet, in a way, they're kind of like the star they follow, right? They come uh-huh. in with a flash, and then when the daylight of Matthew's narrative proceeds, they're gone, Yeah, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. they kind of make this cameo appearance, and then they're out. So I'd love to just hear some thoughts mm-hmm. you have about these guys, and maybe some questions as well. Well, I mean, at least from the gold standpoint, I wish I had somebody that gave me gifts like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I guess what I've always um, studied is found out that there are like astronomers or folks that follow mm-hmm. the stars. Yeah. And I think of them as the you know, apologetic kind of dudes, <laughs> you know, that are very interested in proof and following signs. And mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's some confusion a little bit, I think, because sometimes we hear wise men, but then the song is We Three Kings. Three Kings. Yes. And so it's like, Part of that right. confusion comes down to the Greek term magoi, yeah. um, which has a range of possible meanings. Sure, sure, sure. Magi, so it, uh, the term magi, uh-huh. the, so the Greek term behind that, okay. has a number of possible connotations. Yeah, and so it hmm. leads to speculation about who mm-hmm. these guys are. And isn't it true that probably they weren't there at the nativity, that it was sometime later when they arrived? In terms of the chronology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So one of the things I just want us to consider is, yeah, what are they doing in this story? And yeah. this is in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And we're on the theme of the scripture citations. So in this context, Herod goes and asks his scribes, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they go consult the scriptures and they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet. This is Mm -hmm. Micah. So we'll be looking at Micah in a moment. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. (laughs) Very kind of. Davidic themes there and remembering that this is the birthplace of David, which is kind of its claim to fame. Right. Yeah. So we're going to be thinking about the context there, but I wanted to begin with this theme of the star, Mm -hmm. right? And Elisa, you kind of alluded to that. The Magi are following cosmic signs, following stars. Any sense of why they might be doing that or... Well, we meet them in in, uh, Matthew 2, 1, which says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem Mm -hmm. and said, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose up and have come to worship him. How do they know? It was connected to him. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think there are a couple points to that that are really important. First off, cosmic signs were very often associated with the rise of rulers in the ancient mm. world. So this is a very common theme. Yeah. And when we say cosmic signs, so some kind of star that's obviously different than what they're used to seeing. Yeah, or a Roman says there was a comet that mm-hmm. came by at his death, therefore we know he was deified and taken up into the heavens or things like that. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. And in some of the ancient religions, wasn't there a big emphasis placed on the heavens and the stars and the planets and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Almost like an ancient astrology yes, in some yes, ways. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Well, especially Roman culture, yeah. right? Which is looking not only at the, the planets as things, but gods, right? Yeah. Like, so yeah, very common. The stars are gods, yeah. right, yeah. In, in a way, and planets. The other piece here that's very interesting to me is one of the most well-known messianic text of the period is Numbers 2417. Hmm. What does Numbers 2417 say? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not here. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So there could be a play also on the Messiah's name being a star. So the question is how would astrologers from the East have access to Numbers 2417. Yeah, probably not, right? It <laughs> yeah. could be a connection that Matthew is trying to to play up. To connect. Yeah, we'd be hard-pressed to come up with one singular explanation for mm-hmm. their presence or how Matthew's mm-hmm. narrating it this way. But I'm trying to put out a couple factors that would be probably in play for Matthew as he's thinking about telling the story. Okay, I don't want to dominate, but it, you've got me really intrigued. And I'm yeah. trying to, could there be, because they're from the East and... Could there be any vestiges of the Babylonian exile and yeah. Jews oh, that were there and yeah. they had carried their scriptures Very with them? Very possible. Very possible. Okay. Babylonia is a major site of Judaism ever since the exile. Sure. In fact, in the rabbinic period, 
the authoritative text of the rabbinic period is the Babylonian Talmud, yeah. not the Jerusalem Talmud. Yeah. So it's a major center of, of Judaism from the exile onward. Mm. You know, sometimes in these conversations, I'm just like so intrigued and I'm just like, you know, sitting here lapping this up. But at the same time, I'm going, how does the normal human being who's reading scripture, sometimes this starts to feel completely inaccessible. Oh, I see. You know, it's like, huh? I don't see any of those things in these passages. And it's really fun. This is yeah. really fun to do. Yeah. But in our daily lives, how are we supposed to know when I'm reading like Matthew 2, 1? My question is, how did they know that the king of the Jews would have a star? And, and then we go so deep. I'm like, well, how would the normal person know that? Yeah. I think for me, one of the things I'm most encouraged by in these conversations is just to remember that these were written not in my time. Right. So these are ancient texts that were written for an ancient people. And just that reminder that when they read these, they would have seen things that I missed okay. because that cultural context for them, they're steeped in mm-hmm. prophecies like yeah. Numbers 24, We have to 17. work at it a little harder. We have to work at yeah. it harder because it's we not do. our natural history. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways. Absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is we see this already in Luke 24. It's kind of the first big Bible study Jesus has with his followers after he teaches them how to read the scriptures. Mm. So a big part of Christian community is learning from one another. Mm-hmm. We often have the impression in the United States that we're supposed to figure this out on our yes. own. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. actually, it's, it's quite backwards. We need one another. Thank right. You. We're like the Ethiopian eunuch who says, how can I understand right. unless someone shows me? <laughs> yeah. And what Philip to come sit by me. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> that's one of the reasons we like the context of mm-hmm. discover the word because we get to learn from each other. And in this case, we're having fun learning from you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's great. So, yeah. Notice the irony here, right? That these wise men come to this guy, King Herod, which I mean, he was installed as king of the Jews by Caesar Augustus, yeah. very important figure. And from history, very shrewd, savvy politician. Great engineer. Great engineer. He yes. built multiple temples to Caesar yes. in strategic places, but also kept expanding the temple. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of us don't realize this. The temple project that Herod took on was continuing on up till about six years before the, the Jewish war. Yeah. It's going on even in Jesus's lifetime. But he had very big aspirations, mm-hmm. right? Why? He's not a son of David, right? But he could do even more than the son of David Solomon did. He could make the temple bigger and better, right? He's trying to be better in in a sense. But here come these wise men and say, where's the king of the Jews? The real king. Not you. (laughs) Meaning not you. And so Herod now is, you know, he's... He's disturbed. Yeah, he's he's sweating. He's getting Uh upset. And he asks the scribes to consult the scriptures. And they mention this text, which we read, which is from Micah 5, 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to note that the language there is almost identical in 2 Samuel 5, 2 as well. Uh, we won't have time maybe to talk about that text, yeah. but r- listeners might be interested to look at that text and look at the context mm-hmm. of it at a later point. And that too has the context of a king, right? Precisely. So in that context, David is declared as king by the leaders of Israel, but is already having acted as king during the lifetime of Saul, which is very interesting because now we have them coming to the acting king Mm -hmm. and saying, where's the real king, (laughs) right? So there's an interesting kind of point of resonance there between Mm -hmm. 2 Samuel 5 and what we have going on here. In the Micah context, it fits very well with what we've already been tracing, which is the Davidic king coming to end exile. Basically, you read all of Micah chapter 4, which is the passage that just immediately precedes Micah 5, 2 and onward. It's about exile again. Mm -hmm. So we have this running theme of God's people in exile, the coming of the Davidic king to redeem his people. So that's a really key point that we don't want to miss with this text. And then the third point that I want to make, and we'll see what you all think, is um, the gifts that the Magi bring. Mm -hmm. So how is this significant, right? First off, these Magi are ethnically Gentiles. That's Mm -hmm. clear from the story. Jews wouldn't come and say, where's the king of the Jews? (laughs) They would say, where's our Messiah? (laughs) So this, again, picks up the theme from the genealogy. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. precisely. So this is running through the theme of the genealogy. Here we have Gentiles coming from the East, bringing their gifts to God. 
-hmm. And one of the key things you see in a lot of Old Testament prophecy about the time of restoration is the nations will stream to Zion and bring their gifts, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Okay. So they're presenting their gifts to Jesus. And I would say both as the Messiah, but if we see him as the Emmanuel as well, as Matthew wants us to see, there's kind of almost a sacrificial component to it, ah. a, an offering to the God of Israel, mm -hmm. right? So I just want to read one text for you. This is from Psalm 72, one way of imagining. And this is about the universal reign of the Davidic king. This is the psalmist. May he, that is the Davidic king, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May his foes bow down before him and the enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations give him service. So it's kind of the universal reign of the Messiah, mm. all the nations coming to bring their gifts. So this is sort of a harbinger for yeah. Matthew of yeah. this is what's happening now. The nations are coming to the God of Israel. So we've been tracing this thread through the genealogy and through some of these early scripture citations, which is making a consistent theme that Jesus is the promised son of David, the mm. Messiah who will liberate Israel from exile so that all the nations might receive the blessing in, promised in Abraham. And it's in that blessing that we too as Christians are called, as Abraham was, to go and be a blessing to those around us. There you go, that's what these Old Testament citations or quotes are helping Matthew do as he tells the story of Jesus. Well, that was a great hour we just spent with Dr. Max Botner. We've learned so much. And there's more to come in our next podcast. In part two, Max and Elisa and Bill and Daniel will talk more about the amazing that scripture might be fulfilled statements in Matthew. And we'll start with one about Joseph and Mary and Jesus and their escape to Egypt. Be sure to get part two of this special two-part Discover the Word podcast. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And as we close this episode, just want to let you know that we are grateful to have friends like you joining us for these conversations. And we're also grateful for the supportive friends who make this ministry possible through their financial giving. Discover the Word is free for anyone to listen to. But producing and distributing these studies comes, of course, with expense. And so your gift today will help us to continue to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And you can show your support by giving online at discovertheword.org. Click the Donate tab. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedding. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.